It's early 1893, America's Gilded Age, and Adolphus Bush is about to have dinner on his private railroad car. Bush is a beer baron. He owns Anheuser-Busch, the St. Louis brewery that's made him rich enough to rub shoulders with J.P. Morgan and J.D. Rockefeller. And this handlebar mustached beer king loves flashing his cash. His railroad car is a mobile palace fitted with expensive wood paneling, lush red carpets, and luxurious upholstery. As Bush leans back to let a servant lay a napkin in his lap, his finance advisor approaches, excitedly waving a telegram. Bush jerks forward, eager to hear the message. What's the news? The pavilion at the World's Columbian Exposition is complete and ready for your inspection. Excellent. The World's Columbian Exposition is billed as the greatest ever World's Fair. Millions of visitors are expected during its six-month run, and it opens next month in Chicago. Bush wants people to leave the Anheuser-Busch Pavilion awestruck. But more than that, he wants to eclipse the rival display from America's number one brewer, Pabst. Satisfied by this update, Bush takes a large bite of roast quail before dismissing the advisor with a wave of his hand. But the advisor hesitates at the doorframe. Sir, there's one more thing. Our lawyers report that all but one brewer has agreed to stop making Budweiser. Bush scowls in annoyance. Budweiser is his flagship beer. It's based on a lager created in the Czech city of Budweis during the Middle Ages. Bush first encountered the brew in 1876 and immediately saw its potential. At the time, America was losing interest in the hoppy, opaque brews made by German immigrants like Bush. This pale, bubbly Czech beer seemed like the perfect alternative. So Bush made a few tweaks to the recipe and created Budweiser, the drink that funds his opulent lifestyle. But now other brewers are making Budweiser too. They claim it's within their rights because Budweiser is a type of beer, they say, not a brand. So Bush is threatening to sue every brewery riding on his coattails. And he can't believe his threats haven't achieved full capitulation. Bush throws down his fork. All but one? Who's holding out? Miller Brewing, the brewery near Milwaukee. Well... They had their chance to resolve this like gentlemen. Go on, file the lawsuit. We'll make an example of them. Very good, sir. They won't stand a chance. I imagine we produce more beer every month than Miller does in a year. Miller might have had the guts to stand up to Bush, but now it's got to face the consequences. Anheuser-Busch is going to give Miller a pounding. And not for the last time. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL and speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. 
This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. Every day, millions of us kick back with a beer. It's something people have been doing for millennia. And it's big, big business. In the U.S., we spend $34 billion a year on beer. Worldwide, brewing is a half a trillion dollar industry and growing. In our new series, we delve into brewing's biggest barroom brawl. That brawl, of course, is the one between Anheuser-Busch and Miller Brewing. Both companies were started by German immigrants who came to America with big dreams. Frederick Miller came first. A trained brewer, he reached America in 1855 and founded Miller Brewing in a deserted brewery on the edge of Milwaukee. Two years later, Adolphus Bush arrived in St. Louis by steamboat. He made up for his lack of brewing know-how with razor-sharp business instincts, instincts that led him to buy a stake in the brewery owned by his father-in-law, Eberhard Anheuser. And with that, the scene was set for a battle packed with family feuds, underhanded tactics, and mega-mergers. This is Episode 1, The Beer Barons. It's April 30th, 1893, and Adolphus Bush is in Chicago. The World's Columbian Exposition opens tomorrow, and he's come to inspect his show-stopping pavilion. As he heads through the exposition's 700-acre site, he marvels at the sights. There are grand, brilliant white buildings, life-size recreations of Christopher Columbus's ships, even a moving sidewalk running along the lakeside. And towering above them all is the world's first Ferris wheel. After tearing himself away from the spectacle, Bush enters the palatial agriculture building to find his own pavilion. And when he discovers it, He is utterly delighted. It's a 25-foot-high domed structure built from glass and steel, flecked with gold. Ceiling buttresses decorated with glass beer bottles arch overhead. Nymph-like nude statues straddle the corner archways, raising frothy tankards of lager into the air as if to say, Cheers! Below the statues is a 25-square-foot replica of Anheuser-Busch's brewery in St. Louis. Bush stares at the recreation of his red brick brew house, the first one in America to use pasteurization to extend the shelf life of beer. Next to that structure, he sees a scale model of the building that houses the company's state-of-the-art bottling line. Outside the bottling plant, miniature workers load beer onto refrigerated train cars, another Anheuser-Busch first, allowing the company to ship Budweiser far and wide. Bush's pavilion has cost him $15,000. That's around $400,000 in today's dollars. 
but he reckons it's money well spent. He turns to the team that built the display and smiles broadly. This is marvelous work. <laughs> Pabst will be green with envy. But instead of agreeing, the team looks at their feet. Bush's eyes narrow. Mm, what aren't you telling me? What has Pabst got? No one dares say anything. Bush points at the team's manager. You, take me to their exhibit immediately. A few minutes later, Bush is at the Pabst exhibit. It's just what he feared. His arch-rival has outdone him. Pabst has built a terracotta pavilion with granite steps and a stained-glass dome depicting the history of brewing. Carved hop vines decorate the neoclassical columns. In the center of the room is a detailed replica of Pabst Milwaukee Brewery. But unlike Bush's equivalent, the Pabst model is plated in 24-karat gold. As Bush reels from the shock, the president of Pabst Brewing approaches. His name's Frederick, but everyone calls him Captain Pabst. It's a nod to his days as a steamboat captain on Lake Michigan. Mr. Bush, so kind of you to visit our exhibit. I trust you're impressed. I think having a gold-plated model makes all the difference, don't you? Bush grinds his teeth. He isn't used to being outblinged. There's a reason St. Louis locals call brash displays of wealth bushy. The only thing that matters at this exposition is who wins the best beer competition. Gold plating won't mean much when the judges declare Budweiser America's finest beer. <laughs> yes, we'll see. The race between Bush and Pabst for the grand prize is on. But there's a little problem. See, there is no grand prize. Instead, the exposition organizers intend to give medals to any beer above a minimum standard, rather than name one winning brew. But Pabst and Bush don't want an everyone's-a-winner prize. Each wants to be crowned champion. So, as the exposition continues over the coming months, the two men get to work on the judges. They entice them with expensive banquets, gifts, and other perks. Rumors swirl around the industry about the judges pocketing enormous cash bribes. After enough <clears throat> incentives from the beer barons, the judges alter the scoring system to favor the biggest brewers. They also agree to publish their scores, so it's clear which brewer gets the most points. By the time the exposition enters its final week in October 1893, Bush is feeling confident. So confident that he adds a plaque to his pavilion that preemptively declares Budweiser the winning beer. But when the scores come in, Pabst Select Beer wins by a third of a point. Captain Pabst celebrates by draping a giant blue ribbon over his Milwaukee brewery. Bush isn't giving up yet, though. He lodges an appeal with the organizers. They agree to consider it. The final decision will now be in the hands of one of the judges, a man named Dr. Lichtenfeld. As he waits for the outcome, Bush's lawsuit against Miller for selling beer with the name Budweiser finally reaches court. It's May 31, 1894, and Ernest Miller is in the witness stand of a Milwaukee courtroom. The fresh-faced brewery boss looks anxiously around the courtroom. He's 26, shy, 
and in over his head. Since his father's death six years ago, he and his younger brother have been running the family business. They've been expanding, but it's still a small operation. The company's loggers rarely leave Wisconsin, and now it's up against one of America's biggest breweries. But Anheuser-Busch has reasons to be worried, too. In 1894, U.S. trademark law is a mess, a collection of confused and often contradictory laws and court decisions. Bush worries that Miller will somehow persuade the court that Budweiser isn't an Anheuser-Busch trademark. And that's a real risk, given that Bush copied the name Budweiser from a lager produced in the Czech town of Budweiss. So Anheuser-Busch isn't taking any chances with this case. That's why it's hired the nation's foremost trademark law expert to be its attorney. The attorney's plan is to argue that Anheuser-Busch has invested millions of dollars in developing the Budweiser name and that Miller is unfairly cashing in by selling everyday beer under the Budweiser name. The attorney starts by throwing Miller a softball question. What ingredients differentiate Budweiser from your other beers? Miller looks panicked. Uh, there's, uh, well, I... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't answer this question. Anheuser-Busch's lawyer raises an eyebrow. He'd assumed the head of Miller Brewing might be able to tell the court what was in his beer. So, is there something different about a, about a Budweiser? I, I'm not sure. I'm no brewer. I just wanted to use the name Budweiser. Anheuser-Busch's attorney almost falls over in shock. This guy's committing courtroom suicide. Mr. Miller, why did you want to make Budweiser in the first place? Our customers wanted something different. It's just coincidence that Anheuser-Busch makes a similar beer. Are you saying you were unaware that Anheuser-Busch sells millions of bottles of Budweiser every year? Uh, yes. By the time Miller leaves the witness stand, his company's defense is in tatters. The court's not buying Miller's argument that Budweiser's just a generic name for a type of beer. The judge orders Miller to stop producing and selling Budweiser immediately. Bush figures that's the last time his brewery will ever need to fret about Miller brewing, and with that fight behind him, Bush makes one last-ditch attempt to triumph over Pabst at the world's Columbian Exposition. It's summer, 1894. By now, the exposition is over, but Adolphus Bush won't give up the fight for beer supremacy. Exposition beer judge Lichtenfeld is in his hotel room in the southern German town of Baden-Baden. As he leaves through his mail, there's a knock at the door. Lichtenfeld opens the door, and his jaw drops. Standing in front of him is Adolphus Bush. Good evening, Dr. Lichtenfeld. You are a hard man to find. I've been to Berlin, to Paris, and now here, looking for you. Lichtenfeld is too startled to say anything, so Bush continues. I want to have dinner with you. I have a booking in a nearby restaurant. I'm told it has some very good and expensive vintage wines. After a hearty meal and several bottles of 1862 wine... Bush makes his move. He explains to the well-lubricated beer judge 
how Budweiser is brewed with all natural ingredients without cutting any corners. So don't you agree it's unfair that Budweiser scored less than Pabst in those flawed purity tests? The judge nods in agreement as he shakily raises a glass of wine to his lips. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you agree that an unfortunate error was made. Would you do me the favor of putting that in a letter to the exposition organizers? I believe I have a a pen and paper right here. By the time the two leave the restaurant, Bush has in his hand a letter from Dr. Lichtenfeld awarding Budweiser more points than Pabst. But it's all for nothing. In September 1894, the exposition bosses change their minds and decide they're unwilling to consider Bush's appeal after all. And as if to rub it in, Captain Pabst renames his beer Pabst Blue Ribbon. But while Bush has been busy stamping on Miller and fruitlessly chasing imaginary prizes, something much more serious has been brewing in Ohio. It's called the Anti-Saloon League, and it wants to turn America dry. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's late evening on October 21st, 1913, and raining heavily in St. Louis. But that doesn't deter hundreds of people from gathering at the wrought iron gates of the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. They're here to pay their final respects to Adolphus Busch. Shortly after 9 p.m., they see a train pull up to the brewery's loading dock. The people in the crowd push and stand on tiptoes to get a better view. As they watch the doors to Busch's famous railroad car open and 10 men emerge, carrying the coffin of the deceased beer baron. They carry it off the train car and towards Bush's mansion, which sits within the grounds of his brewery. The next morning, the mansion opens its doors to mourners, and there are thousands of them. 
Bush may have been flashy, but to many in St. Louis, he's a hero, a job creator, and a philanthropist. They file into the mansion's huge drawing room to the sound of Rubinstein's Kameni Ostrov. Orchid petals are scattered on the floor and cover the casket. A huge wreath of roses stands next to the coffin, sent by the brewery's 5,000 employees. It reads, Our Beloved President. At 2 o'clock, the funeral begins inside the mansion, and for five minutes, the city of St. Louis pauses. The streetcars stop. The factories go still. Offices turn silent. As the city stops, the deceased beer baron's closest friend delivers a eulogy. Adolphus was a giant among men. He was like a descendant of the great, vigorous, and ancient gods. He rested among us with his optimism, his far-seeing vision, and his undaunted courage. His energy shaped the affairs of men. After the service, a procession carries the casket from the mansion to the city's grandest cemetery. Leading the procession is August Bush, Adolphus's 48-year-old son and reluctant successor. Tens of thousands of people line the route, bowing their heads and saying goodbye to the king of beer. But the mourners also know the brewing empire Bush built may soon be joining him in the grave. Since its formation in 1893, the Anti-Saloon League has proved to be a formidable political campaign group. It has spent years filling schools with books warning children against alcohol. It's convinced huge numbers of politicians that opposing prohibition is a good way to lose an election. It's also cemented the idea that saloons equal crime in the American mind. In city after city, county after county, the sale and production of alcohol is being banned and the saloons closed and the league couldn't have done it without Bush. Outside of St. Louis, Bush was the perfect villain, a brash German-born man who built an immense fortune by selling intoxicating brews. Not that Bush took their axe lying down. In his final years, the ailing beer baron spent a fortune fighting the prohibitionists. He funded the campaigns of politicians he hoped would oppose prohibition and paid for newspaper ads defending personal liberty over finger-wagging morality. But when he died at 74, he knew he was losing the battle. And now that Bush is dead and buried, the prohibitionists are upping the pressure. It's December 10, 1913, and the Prohibition Movement is on the march in Washington, D.C. 2,000 men, women, and children are heading up Pennsylvania Avenue, waving banners and singing, Onward, Christian Soldiers. Leading the procession is a stiff-looking man named Ernest Charrington. He's a leading light in the Anti-Saloon League. In his hand is a draft of a constitutional amendment banning the manufacture and sale of alcoholic drinks. It's an amendment that will mean no more saloons, no more beer, and no more breweries. As the demonstrators reach the Capitol building, two congressmen are waiting to greet them. The crowd stops singing and 
watches in silence as Charrington hands over his draft amendment to the congressman. Next, Charrington climbs onto one of the huge statues near the entrance to the Capitol and addresses the crowd. When 47 million Americans live in territories from which the saloon has been banished by the will of the people, the time has come when prohibition should be considered of national importance. The crowd claps in support. They feel momentum is on their side, and that momentum is only going to accelerate. When World War I breaks out in Europe, it's a gift to the prohibitionists. Almost all of the successful breweries in America were founded by German immigrants, from giants like Anheuser-Busch, Pabst, and Schlitz, to smaller breweries like Miller and Coors. So as the U.S. mood turns from neutrality to outrage toward Germany, the Prohibition movement highlights the brewers' German connections. It's a strategy that casts doubt over the patriotism of the beer barons and causes beer drinkers to avoid their brews. By the end of the war, the march to Prohibition is unstoppable. And in January 1919, the Prohibition Amendment to the Constitution is approved. And that leaves August Bush with a big decision to make. Shortly after Prohibition passes, he invites his sons Adolphus III and Gussie to dinner at his mansion. The topic of the day is the fate of Anheuser-Busch. Like every other brewer in America, the company must find new ways to survive or shut its doors. Many breweries have already waved the white flag, but others, including Schlitz and Pabst, have vowed to fight on. Now, Bush wants to know whether his sons have the will to keep the business going. The future doesn't look good for the company. Prohibition is about to transform Anheuser-Busch from America's biggest brewery to a corporation with no products and huge overheads. As a servant clears away the plates, August takes a sip from his glass of Budweiser and turns to his sons. Boys, now that prohibition is certain, we must decide what to do with a brewery. We've got lots of money. We could shut it down and retire, you know, enjoy life. There's also a part of August that likes this idea. You know, when he was a young man, he wanted to be a cowboy, not a brewer. Maybe he could cash in his chips and spend his remaining years raising pigs. After all, he never wanted to run the family business. But his elder brother died young, and his younger brother's disability meant that burden fell on his shoulders, a burden he has no intention of forcing on his sons. So we could take the money and run, but in my book, uh, I feel like we owe it to the employees to keep going. I see prohibition as a challenge, and I think we can win. August genuinely has no idea what his sons will say. They're both 20-something playboys, and he wouldn't blame them for not wanting to keep the business going. Eventually, Adolphus III breaks the silence. I want to continue. We could make new products like, I don't know, ice cream and soda. They'd fit well with our refrigerated train network. August turns to his other son. Well, Gussie, what do you think? Gussie looks down at the knuckles of his right hand. 
they're still bruised and cut from his most recent bare-knuckled boxing match. He grins and looks up at his dad. Count me in, Pop. I'm always up for a fight. Let's show him that nothing can stop us. August smiles. He raises his glass of bud. To fighting on. To fighting, to fighting on. on. But the Bushes are not the only beer dynasty that's vowed to fight on. In Milwaukee, the Millers are doing the same. Both families are gambling that one day prohibition will end and they'll get to reap the rewards of holding their nerve through the dry years. On the next episode, Prohibition gets the boot. Gussie fights to regain Anheuser-Busch's crown and Miller dreams of the high life. From Wondery, this is Business Wars, and we sure hope you enjoyed this episode. We invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. You know, you can just tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. We sure hope you do. And if you like what you heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating, and don't forget to tell your friends how to subscribe. You know, there's another way you can support us. That's by answering a short survey at Wondery.com survey. And while you're there, don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations you've been hearing. Now, we can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost and Donna Hyams edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer-Beckman. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondery. For over 100 years, General Motors was America's automaker. But after the 2008 financial crisis, the storied car company nearly died. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, host of Wondery Show, Business Movers. We tell the true stories of business leaders who risked it all, the critical moments that define their journey, and the ideas that transform the way we live our lives. In our latest series, an HR executive named Mary Barra rises to become General Motors' first female CEO, just in time to save the company from ruin. But as Mary fights to lead General Motors into the future, tragedy strikes. Listen to General Motors Back from the Dead from Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the Wondery app. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.